Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event with Vietnamese-Canadian writer Kim Tui. Kim and her family fled Vietnam as boat people, arriving in Canada via a refugee camp when she was 10. With a previous career as a restaurateur and with degrees in law, linguistics and translation, she has now authored two poetic novels, Governor's General Award winner Rue, which mirrors... Sorry, I'll start that again. Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event with Vietnamese-Canadian writer Kim Tui. Kim Tui and her family fled Vietnam as boat people, arriving in Canada via a refugee camp when she was 10. With a previous career as a restaurateur and with degrees in law, linguistics and translation, she has now authored two poetic novels. Rue, which won the Governor-General's Award, mirrors her refugee experience. Man is a tale of love, homeland and identity. The vivacious and thoughtful Twee discusses her work in life with Kate de Goldie in a session supported by the Canada Council for the Arts. the uh, technician put on the microphone I said maybe you don't need a microphone maybe we'll be only 10 or 20 and so oh my god <laughs> hello everyone I'm Kate DeGoldie and it's my great pleasure to um, welcome you all to Beauty of the Everyday with Kim Tui who is with us from Canada more in a minute um, please turn off your phones and Something else. Oh, or switch them to silent, whatever that is. Uh, uh, this is the usual um, Auckland Writers' Festival session. Kim and I are going to be in conversation, which I'm looking forward to greatly. And we will leave 15 minutes before the end for uh, questions from you, the audience. And there are going to be microphones here and here for you to stand at if you have a question to ask. So I'll give you a signal um, as to when it's time if you want to come and line up. Please do. Be free with your questions. I want to acknowledge the support of the Canada Council for the Arts for Kim's visit to New Zealand. It's our privilege to have her here, for sure. Um, Kim has written two quite beautiful, elegant, quiet but profound books. And I'm going to need your pronunciation, Kim. Rue? Yes, perfect. And Man? Yes. Yes, good. Um, She speaks Vietnamese, you don't know this. She pronounced my name better than I could. uh, I was reassuring Kim that she needn't worry about um, her uh, suggested inadequacy in English. She speaks several languages. I speak only English. So um, um, we're we're very lucky that you're here speaking English with us, Kim. Kim has come to us from Canada... But her her journey, if you like, began a long time before that from Vietnam via a Malaysian refugee camp. And her books draw on her extraordinary experience and, in a sense, the experience of Vietnam's pain over the last 50 years. And I'm sure this will come up in our conversation. But first of all, please welcome her. Thank you. I was going to ask for a favor. Could, could I see you? Could, could we have the light in the room? Because this is unbelievable. <laughs> I, 
I've been to quite a few festivals yes. and, and uh, in Montreal. We never get to have so many readers in the same room. Um, yeah, so I'll have to take you in pictures so that they believe me. This is a really interactive session. <laughs> it's clear she barely needs an interlocutor, but I'm going to start with a question. Um, there's um, a moment in the book Rue where um, the narrator talks about how she talks to her son Pascal about the past. Oral histories, she says, are keeping the past alive. And there are many histories that simply won't be in the books. And it occurred to me that you've had a whole other series of lives before you became a writer. And it occurred to me that in some sense you're doing the same thing with these books, aren't you? You're keeping the past alive. You're telling stories that might not be found elsewhere. Can you tell us how you began to write and why? Mm. Um, I'll try to make it short because it, it was... Uh... We've got an hour. <laughs> you know, I was not meant to, to write at all because I don't, I don't have a tool. Uh, you need to master at least one language in order to write. And I don't master any of the three languages uh, which I can kind of speak. Uh, and to, they are? Uh, Vietnamese, French, and English because I come from Montreal and Quebec. So I did all my schooling in French. Uh, I left Vietnam when I was 10. And, and, you know, uh, Vietnamese, well, Vietnamese culture, we don't verbalize emotions so much. So all emotions are being written more than, than said. And, uh, and so all the emotions, I've learned them in, in French. And before the age of 10, you know, you, you cannot really identify or qualify uh, the different emotions that you have. And so in French, I would know the words like nostalgia, melancholia, uh, grief, uh, for example, and sadness. But in Vietnamese, I only know one word, sadness. And I don't have all those nuances. And, and so I would never be able to write in Vietnamese. And English, I've never been to school in English. And uh, so uh, I, I used English a lot when I was a, a lawyer mm -hmm. to fight. So when I speak English, usually it's, uh, it's not in, with nice words, you know. <laughs> and my husband hates it when I, I start speaking to him in, in English because he knew that the fight would be fierce. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. And he's French Canadian, and yeah. uh, and so is that because there were good Anglo-Saxon swear words? Uh, or was yes, it just harder. Uh, everything. Yeah. yeah, the swear words. I don't know how to swear in French. I cannot swear in French at all, and I cannot definitely not swear in in, in Vietnamese because my Vietnamese is um, is a child. Uh, uh, not a, childish, but a child at level. At a child's level. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so I can only swear in English. <laughs> so, so in a sense, you're saying that there are parts of you that have been constructed by these different languages. Absolutely. So you're multifaceted as a person because of the language making you. Yes, and, and frustrated as well, because none of it is, is complete. And, for example, just the word um, home, it doesn't exist in French. And then, and, uh, yeah, it doesn't, there's no translation for, for a word as, as simple as home. And then jouissance, I don't know if you, you yeah. know that word in, in French, jouissance. You don't have it in English. No. And, um, <laughs> so could you roughly translate jouissance? Jouissance is, uh, you know, more than pleasure, right. but okay. less than orgasmic. So like sort of a piquancy? Would, would um, that cover it? You know, it's, it's more than joy. You know, it's longer and it's full. It's, it's round. I don't know how you say it. It's ample. 
Right. And, right. and, and, yeah, so it's jouissance, you know? And, yeah. uh, and I don't know why you don't have it in English. <laughs> you know, it's such a beautiful word. Yeah. So anyway, so I was not supposed to, to write because um, when I took a, a creative writing class, uh, my teacher uh, asked me to go into his office. And for the first time, he said um, he did this because on 100%, it was divided into three rocks. Uh, uh, one was uh, for the knowledge of French, 33%, and the second one was uh, participation in class, and the last one, creativity. And he said for the first time in his career, he had never done this before, but he gave me zero for knowledge of French. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I still have 66, right? It's not so bad. But then he said uh, for participation in class, same thing, zero. So... <laughs> So yeah, so I uh, I was not meant to mm. to to write, and it came about really accidentally because I fell asleep a lot at red lights. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes they're really accident long. might be the right word here. Yeah, yeah. There's one waiting to happen. Yeah, and and when you fall asleep, your foot would get lighter, the the brake would release itself, and then your car moves, and then it hits. A, and so it happened a couple of times. Uh, so my my yeah, so I, I had to find a, a trick. To, uh, to stay awake before my husband would divorce me or something like that. So I started uh, taking notes just to do those to-do lists. While you were in the car? Yeah, well, yeah. at red lights, you know, yeah, just to yeah. stay awake. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then one day, I don't know, I think the light was, was broken or something. It was longer. Mm. So I turned it over and I started writing. And then uh, a month later... Uh, uh, I had a restaurant at that point, mm. so my, my husband forced me to stay home for a month. It was my penalty period, like he, he says it, for hockey, you know. Uh, so <laughs> I, I was not allowed to go back to work uh, for he, a month. He was forcing you to rest? Uh, no, just to really find a career that right. I, I loved, yeah. and, uh, and I didn't know where to find mm. that, mm. you know, how, how to dream, basically. And so what came out on those pieces of paper? Uh, what you have yeah, in Rue, yeah. it just came out and it was supposed to be just a text and I never knew that it was a book mm. until a friend of mine took it to, uh, well, he used to be a customer uh, at the restaurant. A mm. customer, it sounded funny to say that he used to be a customer. <laughs> yeah, a client. But uh, yeah, so he took it to, uh, to a publisher, but I never knew that it was a book. Mm. But there was no title when he took it. And it was not into paragraphs or anything. Mm. It was just one text. Mm. And he said, he, yeah, he took it. So I didn't even leak any stamps. And, and it's a thing that I love to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I, I don't have the, uh, the enzyme, like mm. most Asians, the, to, to break the, um, the molecule, the alcohol mm. molecule. So I get um, a buzz. It, very quickly, just a sip, you know. And, uh, so, easy to yeah. so I don't drink coffee because I'm already uh, too quick, and and uh, and so the only yeah glue on the stamp. But now, <laughs> but now they make self-sticking. Uh, you know, so so I know. I'm so mad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, let's talk about Ruth. So the, there it was. Um, there were no particular paragraphs, and as you saw it, it was a kind of unmediated kind of pouring yeah. out onto the page. But what, for those of you who haven't read it, what we have here is um, what feels like almost a severely beautiful text divided into vignettes. There's not exactly a linear story, 
but the vignettes rub against each other and inform each other. And we get a story of not just an entire culture, a kind of global story really, and the story of several generations, and the story of fracture and coming together. It's the story of your family as much as anything, isn't it? It will seem, I mean, yeah, you're, yeah. you're pouring your autobiography into it in some ways. Mm. And I, I think in any way, when you start writing, you, uh, uh, I, I didn't do it uh, mm. in a professional way as a writer, mm. uh, but I gave myself a lot of freedom to just write because some of the stories were so heavy, you know, that you, you have to break them up into smaller pieces mm. and give different names for the same uh, the same story of the same person it couldn't hold mm. and then sometimes it's not that the story is, is boring but it's it doesn't stand by itself uh, so I had to put more stories mm. into one under the same character and and I, I gave myself for example the um, uh, the freedom to say that I, I was exposed to literature yeah. through a man I met in a, in a Chinese restaurant who mm. was uh, in prison for, for mm. some time and and he told, uh, and that story was true. I was 13 or 14 waiting for my father in that restaurant. And he, he started telling me that he was in prison. And what saved him was that he had a, a small piece of paper and, and a pen. And he just kept writing on that piece of paper, one word on top of the other, because the, the piece was so small. And he said that it kept him sane. And... and you know, when I was 13 or 14, I don't think that I was impressed with him or interested in an older man telling me a story about writing. But when you sit down and write and you want to talk about, you know, how words are important, and, and we, we can see it with Nelson Mandela, right, who mm -hmm. wrote uh, during his time in prison, and I think that also kept him alive. Mm. Um, and so I took that story and, say that, and, and gave myself the freedom to say that he introduced me to literature. Mm. But the, the real story is that my, it, it's my uncle, who, um, who, is only, who is only seven years older than I am, and he lived in the same house uh, mm. when I was younger. And, uh, and we bought our first book in Canada. Uh, it was so expensive to us. It was $15. And we knew that $15 could feed our family back home for half a, half a month, a month even. So it, we felt so guilty to go and buy this book. And, and, uh, but it was the first book that talked about Vietnam uh, in a different way than we knew uh, of Vietnam, and it was the lover of Marguerite Duras. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so he, I, I didn't master French well enough, so he read from the first line to the last line to explain to me why it was such a great book. And then to my parents, the best way to learn a language is to do dictations because then you have to analyze the structure, the grammar, and all of that. So I, they, they made me do the dictation from page one to the last page. And then to my mother, she said the best way, again, to learn the melody or the, uh, the musicality of a language is to learn it by heart. Mm. So I learned it by heart from the first page to the last page. So, you know, no, no punctuation, not even a comma had been wasted of those $15. Uh, but the problem You literally was, consumed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the problem was I started talking like Marguerite Duras, right? And then I went to school instead of saying to, you know, classmates, oh, what, you look sad today or something. I said, oh, your face is devastated. You know? 
<laughs> and so I was very popular in school, as you could imagine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so when they asked me, how old are you? Oh, j'avais 15 ans. You know, <laughs> the Marguerite Duras way. So it, it didn't go well. Actually. <laughs> it's so interesting because, um, because the tone of Rue is so pulled back. You know, it's, it's very pared down. And, I mean, it's been compared to poetry. It's a kind of prose poetry in a way, mm. isn't it? I think it's because of my lack of vocabulary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, really. I... I you know, because you see me in real life, you know, I, I cannot stop talking. But um, <laughs> in Rue, uh, you know, every day when I sat down to, to write, uh, I would re read again from first line and just take away. Mm -hmm. So every paragraph that you have, uh, at the beginning there were three or four pages, mm -hmm. and I just delete, you know, whatever there was I had. And it has that essentialized feeling, like it's been paired right back to its sort of ultimate essence, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so. Can I ask you, it begins I came into the world during the Tet Offensive in the early days of the Year of the Monkey. Is that congruent with your autobiography? Were you born around I, that time in the mid 60s? I was conceived. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was conceived during the Tet Offensive. Uh, but I couldn't talk about the Vietnam War and not talk mm. about that event, that mm. Tet Offensive, which was a, a key moment, a turning point in, in the war um, during the American years. And, uh, and so, like mm. I told you, I, mm. I gave myself the liberty yes. the, to, to play with the time and the facts yeah. and, and to Be tell the story. Because for me as a reader, of course, I, I come age 55 with a history of the Vietnam War learned through America, of course, mm -hmm. the war that you call the American War. Yeah. Um, when you was the Vietnam War. So, so as, as well as being incredibly beautiful in the story of a family and an, an incredible journey, it's a history. I mean, I'm actually learning a whole lot of facts about what went on oh, for the I'm people. I'm really happy that you, you say that because my husband, who is French-Canadian but who has read a lot about yeah. Vietnamese history, the first time that he read it, he would add, you know, dates and yes. facts <laughs> next to the paragraphs. No, I, no, no that, that seems sort of superfluous. But, but I did want, you to, I'd want to ask you to sort of give a broad sense of both what happens in here, and I guess it's um, more or less congruent with your family's life. You were born during the American War, mm -hmm. and, but you, uh, much of your childhood, or, or the times you remember, was in the period after the war yeah. when the communists... Had, had come in. And that's, in a way, a period that we don't hear about. Um, it's true. It's after the conflict. In other words, it's after the moment when the Americans were there. Mm -hmm. And so it's like we leave the country. The West leaves the country to itself. You don't hear so much about it because, um, you know, history is a, is a luxury. Mm. Uh, when you in, uh, you're in a, a state of war or, or in a crisis, nobody has time to sit mm. down and, and look at at the collective history, if you go to uh, Congo today, mm -hmm. uh, nobody has time to sit down. And, and if you heard about the Vietnam War or the American War, I don't know how we call mm -hmm. it, but that war, uh, you would have the Americans who had the luxury to look mm -hmm. at us and talk about it. And it's quite sad, actually, because the Vietnam... Uh, the Vietnamese history is found more in uh, in the U.S. Mm. or in France mm. than in Vietnam itself. 
because mm. we didn't have that time. Yeah. And when you're in the survival mode, uh, you know, when you run, it's impossible to look back. Mm. And, and I would say, I, I think we're more than one million Vietnamese uh, living all over the place. Mm. Um, but there are not so many books about boat people. And uh, I think it's because we didn't have the privilege to sit down. We've been, you know, running, yeah. trying to catch up. And I'm generation 1.5, mm. I would say. And finally, I have this privilege mm. to just sit and, and look back. Um, so that's why you don't mm. hear so much about that period that came afterwards. It's striking because um, based on the, the family in the book, they're a family of status. And um, once the communists take over, they're then obliged to share their house. It's divided. And, I mean, there are many things, there are many quiet heroisms throughout the story. But one thing that's really striking is that even though, in a sense, the house of the family has been occupied by, you know, um, soldiers. A new, a, soldiers and a new political mm -hmm. ideology, nevertheless, there's a kind of a, um, a cooperation that occurs every now and again. Yes. Just between human beings. Because we're just human beings. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had the chance when I was a lawyer, I had the chance to go back to Vietnam to work. Mm. I come from Saigon. Uh, but then when I went back, uh, I was sent to Hanoi, mm. um, and I worked with, um, maybe I should not say this if there are Vietnamese in the room, because they will, I don't know, scold me, but I, I worked with the, the, the Vietnamese Prime Minister's uh, Advisors Group on Reform Policies. Mm. Uh, so I, didn't, I thought I knew Vietnam, but of course I didn't know anything about Vietnam. Uh, the, the country was divided, mm. there was no communication and no information flowing from the north to the south. So whatever we knew of the north was wrong, as well as what, we, what the north knew about us was wrong. And so I had the opportunity when I was in the north to meet these women, and, and um, I don't know why, but women, you know, uh, no, I know why, because during the war, uh, men were in were, were sent away, they were on a battlefield. So the women stayed back and they were the one who really held that country together and, 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 and make it work despite the fact that, you know, it was at war. And so they are more, um, I don't know, they took control probably mm. of, of the country. So if you want information in Vietnam, please ask a woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because the men are, are I don't know, they're, they're, they're less, they won't, uh, no, I should not say that. <laughs> but when I was there anyway in the 90s, uh, she, they, so they told me that when you have a, a son who was 14 or 15 and he's healthy and he's not with the army, then the whole village and everybody would look at you and say, oh, uh, is your family anti-revolutionary, yeah. uh, anti-patriotic? You don't want to save the South from torture, from famine, from hunger, uh, from the Americans, and so on and so forth. So, uh, so you were forced basically to send your kids away, and the kind of information you had was that. Mm. So when they came in, you know, most of the soldiers, well, most of, yeah, most of the soldiers, all they had was their uniform with two T-shirts, a scarf, a helmet, and a pair of sandals made of um, recycled uh, tire. And, uh, and, and I got to meet some of the female soldiers, and I asked them, I said, yeah, but for women, you know, it's, mm. uh, we have different needs. And, uh, and she, they said that they have uh, two towels and two pins. Mm. 
that uh, so one they use one towel, uh, folded into three, just pin it to the pens, and and then the other one would be drying, and then they just exchange mm -hmm. right from, mm -hmm. and so when they arrived in the south, they were very surprised at what they found. Mm. And uh, and I still remember one of the, f the 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 things they didn't know is they they had never seen underwear, and so they wonder why the people in the south they all had those veins running at the buttocks, you know, and how do you say at the cheeks and behind, and said. So, Oh, they have something very different, you know. That kind of people, they have mm. veins <laughs> under their, 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 their cheeks, and uh, it's only later on that they underwear. Those dualities or binary situations are throughout both your books. There's the North and the South of Vietnam. There's the communists and the capitalists. Then, when you're in Quebec, there's the French speaking and the English speaking. And so, part of you is always negotiating two parts, isn't it? I, w I would say that. Ha uh, uh, a journalist in France mm. actually has, uh, had told me that I'm not, I, I don't have to battle. I can have both. And, it's integrated. And, uh, yes, yes, and it's, it's totally fusio, uh, fused, fused yes. together. And I'll give you one example where it's so fused that I get confused myself. Mm -hmm. uh, that <laughs> uh, the word rebel, and I, I, I've written about it. Uh, you know the word uh, rebel in French? It's uh, rebelle. So B-E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. Mm. So the first time I saw it, I thought it was such a beautiful word because it meant belle again, right? <laughs> Re is, is the second time. Mm. And then belle. So I never looked it up in the dictionary because I thought I knew the definition. Uh, because in the Vietnamese tradition, you can lose your beauty. If you mean, if you say, uh, you know, you mm. use ugly words and stuff like that, you would lose your beauty. Mm. And I said, oh, and the French is giving us the chance to, for redemption, you know, mm. that you can be rebel. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so I used that word in one of my, my texts mm. for my creative writing class, and I got zero because I <laughs> used it in the sense of bell again. And I didn't know that because of the two knowledge, you know, the two, mm, two mm. traditions. Mm. I just thought that... That is fused in your head. Yeah, 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 yeah. That it was very natural that bell is mm. bell again. And, and, and so it happens all the time, as you can say. And I'm very happy that I can tell my husband sometimes when I don't want to do something. I said, I'm Vietnamese, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and with my, my parents, I'm Canadian, right. of course. <laughs> It comes something that's so striking about you as a person, but it also comes through in the books. There's, um, despite the extraordinary hardship and the extraordinary loss, you know, beyond most of our capacity to imagine, um, you're just fizzing with life, and that comes through in the books in so many ways. And there's, there's a kind of um, interior creativity to the text, and, and one of the things that is constantly um, encouraging creativity is the production of food. Mm. And um, I, I know you ran a restaurant, and your second book, Man, has it's just it, it's just suffused with food. Mm. Um, and, and food is both a metaphor, a real thing. It's used to nourish. It's used to placate. Um, it's used to bind people together. Can you talk a bit about your, first of all, your restaurant life and then how you translated it to mm. the page and how you used it? Yeah. 
So I, after my lawyer's year, I opened up that, that restaurant without knowing how to cook. So that was like a big problem. I, <laughs> no, I thought that I could hire a, a chef. But the restaurant was so small. There were only 30-something seats. And, and so I, I didn't mm. make enough money to hire a chef. So I had to cook, you know, overnight. I said, oh, my God, I have to cook. And I didn't know how to cook, so I just called my mom. Can, can, can I just ask, despite yeah. the fact that in here you talk about how Vietnamese women pass on whispering, Yes, the recipes, so no one hears them. So the family tradition isn't Exactly, so yeah. you have to call your mom. <laughs> you cannot buy a recipe book right. and just yeah. learn from it, yeah. right? So if you go for a Vietnamese recipe book, yeah. don't rely on it because there's always something missing. It's, yeah, you know, <laughs> maybe it has changed, but uh, if you really, if you buy it written in Vietnamese, uh, try it before you have guests over because it, wouldn't, <laughs> it doesn't work. And so I would call up my mom for, for a recipe and then just cook that dish. So at my restaurant, there was only one dish a day. You cannot choose or you couldn't do it. That, that's it. And uh, at the beginning, though, people... The customers, they thought that it was a concept that I had. Uh, <laughs> you know, that I saved them time. They, had, yeah. they didn't have to look through the menu. Uh, but, of course not. It was just me not being able to do more. And, uh, and then I, guess I, I talked about food because um, I have a, a friend who's Canadian, you know, a normal person who's been... No, but I mean, you know, so she, she's been seeing a therapist for the last 10 years because, uh, no, no, but it's, I think it's normal, right? We yeah. all need to have a worried well. Yes, yeah. yeah. We, we need to go. Mm. And, and, and one of her issues is that um, uh, her parents had not said, I love you to her enough, and, and it, it's affecting her life. And, and I asked her, you know, after 10 years, what, what else do you have left to say, you know? Like, and, and I said, do you invent stories? And I just wanted to know more about it. And she said, you don't know, you know, you've never been to a therapist. We cannot discuss about this. You don't understand. And I said, okay, then I'm going to book a, a session with a therapist. So I called and I asked a double session, actually, two hours instead of one. Uh, you know, just a, a quick start. And... Uh, <laughs> No, because, well, you know, because my parents never say I love you to me. So I said, maybe I have a problem, and I didn't know. But isn't that because in Vietnamese you don't express emotions? Exactly, yeah. because it's, it's, you know, we don't yeah. say these things. But I didn't know. I said, maybe I have a problem, too. So, <laughs> you know, so, so I went, and uh, after two hours, the ter therapist kicked me out. And he said, please don't come back. <laughs> and don't call or whatever. So... I don't know why, I, I, I was so stunned, I, I, I didn't ask him why, why you don't want me anymore, <laughs> you know, but, so anyway, so I, I went home and I said, oh, how come, they never say I love you to me, but I still felt loved, loved. And, and that's where I started looking, you know, for the signs and, and how it worked. Uh, because again, that fusion, right, I, I didn't know that I, have, I had become Canadian more than Vietnamese, no, not really, I, because I don't know how to say I love you to my kids. So, <laughs> basically, so still there. Yeah, yeah, therapy. Mm. Um, <laughs> and uh, and my uh, so so I started looking, and then I saw my parents, you know, taking care of each other through food all the time, mm. Mm. and it didn't it didn't matter what time mm. I I 
go to their house. Mm. They will always open the fridge and put everything on the table. And, uh, you know, now we're living next to each other. We share a wall. So my mom would show up, I think, at uh, 7.30 in the morning. And she said, I have lunch. Do you want lunch? And I said, it's only 7.30. <laughs> she said, of course, I have already breakfast. But, you know, and, and, and so she, it, it, well, you know, I'm not so skinny anymore because of her. I, I blame her too much love. And uh, so it's all It's the agent of, of love. Yes, yeah. because they never ask you why are you sad or you look mm-hmm. sad. or No, it's always about food. And, and one of the, 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 the events that really made me understand was that we had a grilled fish, the whole fish. And my mom just, you know, something she has always done. And, but I, um, I never registered or, or had an interpretation for it. But she would pick out the cheek of the, the fish, the, the two cheeks, and give them to my father. Mm. And uh, because, of course, they are the best pieces, Sweetest, right? Yeah. Because they're small and mm. rare and I don't know. I, I'm not sure it's better. Well, they're not overworked, are they? Yeah, yeah. just here, you know, little pieces. And, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then my father, because I was there that day, he gave them to me. Uh, yeah, and then I, my son was there, so I wanted him to taste them. So I automatically, I, I gave them to him. And then he saw my mother who was sitting there. So as a good grandson, he had to give the, the cheek to her. And by that time, yes, by that time, there were no more cheeks, right? It crumbled and uh, what are into smaller pieces. But there was a moment of love just going mm. through the table. Mm. And that's where... I understood what it was. And the other event was that my, my father, when we arrived in Canada, of course, we were very poor, and there were not so many Asian food, mm. actually, at that point, 36 years ago. And so when the first time, when we saw the first guava, mm-hmm. ah, you know, that was mm-hmm. epiphany, you know, like, ah, my God. And, and at the beginning, we didn't have enough money to buy it. And it took some time for my father to one day dare to buy the first guava. So we all sat down around the table, and he sliced that guava into really thin pieces and gave it to us. And he thought that we didn't have a memory of that food mm. because we left uh, quite young. But it came back. Mm. I, I, I remember how at school we were not allowed to eat those guava uh, being sold on the streets because it was dirty and we had to wait to eat them at home and at home is never as good Mm -hmm. i don't know why but it's never as good and so you know that taste came back and that entire memory came back and my brothers uh decided that it's their favorite fruit Mm -hmm. even today you know my Mm -hmm. father keeps Mm -hmm. buying uh guava and 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 so it's a there's a memory through food it's not so much because guava doesn't taste much, no, right? No. It's just a green fruit. And maybe a texture. Yeah, too, yeah. and a lot of uh, the seeds and it's mm. unpleasant and but I don't know, it's, it's just great. Uh, but two so two, three months ago my son, I don't know what happened to him, but he said to my father that his favorite fruit is guava. And because he's half-half, some days he's just a you know, somebody else's son. I don't, <laughs> I don't recognize him at all. He's just white. And then some other days he's, he's mm. more me, but mm. then I'm not sure. Uh, you know, if I was the father, I wouldn't 
I, uh, yeah, I would question the paternity or the <laughs> maternity, but it came out of me, so there was no question about it. And uh, so he said that to my father, and then my father said, you see, I've told you my grandson, he's Vietnamese. Absolutely, yeah. And so it just threw that fruit, yeah. just, just one piece of, and, and then my, my, my husband, the first time that he fell sick, and, and you know how men are sick. When they're sick, they're very sick, and they're almost dying. And uh, so I made congee, just rice. Oh, and you hit that in yeah. Hand, don't you? Yeah. And, and it's a reflex for mm, me to mm. make congee for him because congee cures mm. all diseases, as you well, know. Well, in fact, in man, she, it's an arranged marriage, but she, it's almost like she learns to love her husband by feeding him. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that's why the Vietnamese mm. have to keep the, uh, the recipe secret mm. because otherwise your neighbor can steal your husband from you, right? <laughs> and it, it's, it's, it's clear that um, those sensory experiences which bind everyone and they come from the earth, mm-hmm. those things, are crucial because the other thing that is so apparent throughout the stories and it kind of creeps up on you are the people that have disappeared as a consequence of the conflict. And there's, there's two that really struck me. Um, both in Rue, um, the, um, or maybe one of them is I can't remember. Um, it's the, okay. I'm in, in, the, in the Malaysian refugee camp, we went from um, Vietnam, at great cost, you had to find money to do that, or gold. You're in the Malaysian refugee camp. There's a huge, well, it's a sewer really, isn't it? Um, yeah. um, and when you walk across the sewer, you have to be really careful about your footing, and a woman falls in mm. and dies. And it's it's dealt with very gently, but it's, but it's still graphic, mm. and it lingers with you. And the other one is the boat arriving in Malaysia, the man who goes back to get his gold from the boat mm. and is drowned. So it's just two representative people gone, and the rest of the diaspora around the world, in a way, are carrying their memories, aren't they? And you, you asked me why I, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'm laughing all the time. Probably, I, and I think I'm, you know... Our boat trip was such a peaceful one. We were very lucky. It mm. lasted only for four days, three nights, and we arrived in Malaysia without any uh, encounter with pirates, so no mm. stealing, no raping, nothing mm. at all. Uh, but despite that, and even though I was very young and, and nobody told me about the, mm. the horrible stories that happened, you still have it in the back of your mind. Um, there's, there are no statistics. There's no statistics. There yes. is no. There are so, no statistics. There are no statistics yeah. in uh, underwear. Is always singular. My friend reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> Never say underwears with s. <laughs> the statistic M-pra. is always plural. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so that, there are st- there are no statistics, but um, uh, you, that night there were ten boats uh, yeah. which left the shore of Vietnam, and apparently there were only three which arrived, mm. and. And my uncle, who left a little bit after us, uh, he encountered seven pirate boats. And Mm. so you can imagine the women and what happened to them and all of that. And and now, yes, as an adult and after this book, Mm. many people have come up to me and tell me their story. Mm. And I I still remember that one time when I went to a school uh, quite in a small town quite far away in the province of Quebec. And this woman came up, and she spoke to me at first in French, but with that 
particular accent from that uh, that area. So it, it, it was very weird, you know, mm. to see a Vietnamese speaking with a strong accent from a, <laughs> uh, from that area. And then she came out with her with her daughter, and she was very proud to present me her daughter, who is one of the stylists for Celine Dion, mm. you know, like, and uh, and so we started chatting. So I asked her when she arrived in Canada mm. and why she chose that city because there's always a story behind. Yes. Yeah. And uh, she said that her boat uh, encountered another, uh, encountered a pirate boat mm. and the pirates asked all the women to uh, jump to the pirate boat. Mm. And, uh, and if you refuse, you were just being pushed over into the sea. Mm. And so they, they obey except for one woman who was so scared that she cried and cried and cried. So when she jumped, she hesitated so much that she fell in between. And just the fact that the boats moved, they mm. cut off her, her, her legs, so she yeah. fell. And for some miracle reasons, uh, they saved that woman, put her back in, onto the Vietnamese boat and asked all the women to go back. Now, I'm telling you this, but I'm not sure that that's the true story because her daughter was there mm -hmm. and the daughter at that point looked at, at her and said, how come you've never told me the story? Mm -hmm. So she had never told any of this to the daughter. Mm -hmm. And so she said that the boat, yeah, so that woman died on, on the boat because of the bleeding and, and they all prayed her soul to take them to, to shore and they finally arrived in Malaysia but then got pushed back mm. out onto sea again, and there was an Italian ship coming by, and apparently they got an order from the Pope to save that boat, really. <laughs> and they went to Italy. Mm. And so they never went to a refugee camp, mm. but she said, then I said, why did you leave Italy for this small place? You know, Italy is not bad. <laughs> and she said, well, because her father saw a communist flag in a, in a window. And maybe it was just a student association mm, or something. Mm, mm. But they said, oh my God, communism is, is in Italy oh. as well. We have to leave. We have to leave. And that's how yeah. they left Canada yeah. again. So when you, when you know all these stories, mm. you know, or you know the, not know, but you, you just assume. Yes. Yeah. Unconsciously, you yeah. just know. I think we, I am not allowed to waste the mm. time that I have. No. Uh, because so many people mm. didn't have the chance to live, mm. so I have to make use of every single minute I, I, I have. Mm. So I'm basically condemned to happiness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, it's heavy, you know, <laughs> to be happy all the time. <laughs> it's like... Uh... That, that is quite something. The, the other side of the people who have disappeared are the people who have spread around the world. And there's an Im immensely touching moment in um, Rue. Rue, by the way, which means a, um, a flow. Yes, yes, a very small streak, that's yes. how you say it, yes. from the mountain, you know, when, when the... Yeah. yeah, very small, that, that little water coming down mm. from the mountain. Uh, it's a word that... The, it, it's in French, yes. but it's not so much used anymore. It's Akaike, 
but uh, but it works with the, the Vietnamese. Yes, uh, in French, rue means a small stream and figuratively a flow, a discharge of tears, of blood, of money. In Vietnamese, it means a lullaby, to lull. Yeah. And those two things are working all the way through the book. But near the end, there's a really beautiful moment when um, the narrator meets another Vietnamese man and it's how they recognize each other. And mm. I'd like you to read that if you want. Sure. And I try to be sexy with this. <laughs> <laughs> when I wrote this. Coming home after leaving my cousins at the University of Sherbrooke, I was approached in a gas station by a Vietnamese man who had recognized my vaccination scar. One look at that scar took him back in time and let him see himself as a little boy walking to school along a dirt path with his slate under his arm. One look at that scar and he knew that our eyes had already seen the yellow blossoms on the branches of plum trees at the front door of every house at New Year's. One look at that scar brought back to him the delicious aroma of caramelized fish with pepper simmering in, the, in an earthen pot that sat directly on the coals. One look at that scar and our ears heard again the sound produced by the stem of a young bamboo as it sliced the air then lacerated the skin of our backsides. One look at that scar and our tropical roots transplanted onto land covered with snow emerged again. In one second, we had seen our own ambivalence, our hybrid state, half this, half that, nothing at all and everything at once. A single mark on the skin and our entire shared history was spread out between two gas pumps in a station by a highway exit. He had concealed his car, his car under a midnight blue dragon. I couldn't see it with my naked eye. He had only to run his finger over my immodestly exhibited scar, however, and take my finger in his other hand and run it over the back of his dragon and immediately we experienced a moment of complicity, of commun communion. So thank you, Matt, who helped me, you know, go through the English words, <laughs> the volunteer in the back. So, um, so yeah, I still, ha yeah, I have these scars. You know, when I don't know if you still have these scars in some uh, people do, uh, yeah, 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 the older maybe yeah. generation, mm. and uh, and I have a son who is autistic, and to him. It's it's a it's a, not a scar, but how do you say it? A, a beauty spot? Uh, no, it's it's uh, it hurts. Uh, oh, it, it, it's, it's painful. It's uh, it's yeah, a wound. It's a wound. Yeah. So yeah. he would always put a bandaid on me, like <laughs> every time that he sees me with this, he has to put a bandaid on. Oh my God, your skin is is mm. is wounded. Mm. And uh, yeah, can I ask you about silence? You you, you talk about um, the character's autistic son in here and also about um, the narrator's silence mm. on arrival in um, Quebec. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the silence came even before that, uh, because you can imagine in 1975 then when the country, uh, when the war ended, but then the transitional years started, and when we talk about transitions, it's always chaos, mm. yeah? Uh, and we can see it with Egypt, uh, you know, with so many countries, with the Eastern Bloc countries mm. as well. Um, so Vietnam had to go through that. 
And during those transitional years, I would say that it was the first time that I heard silence. Uh, silence in the house and silence outside of the house. Because then we had curfew, of course, uh, but you know, children were asked to denounce uh, their parents. I was asked to denounce my, you know, any anti-revolutionary action uh, act from, uh, committed by mm. my parents. And anti-revolutionary was, um, you know, listening to music or reading a book or uh, eating more meat than you should eat. And 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 so every week you had to stand up and talk and. So in the house, not that you don't trust each other anymore, but you don't. You want to know the least, so that you cannot say anything about yeah. the other person. Yeah. And uh, so was that an unspoken agreement with everyone? Yes, yeah. yes. Tessa. And the fear, as well. Fear yeah. creates a lot of silence, and and so the whole. You know, when all of a sudden you don't hear any more music. Yeah. The only music you hear is the one from the the, the speaker of the. Uh, of the the neighborhood, yeah. uh, you know, mm. the, but it's it's mu not so much music, but mm. more propaganda music, uh, music, mm. uh, and from that speaker, mm. and then the rest nobody talked mm. because everybody had to be very careful. And my uncle, who went to a re-education re re camp, yep. uh, he said that you have to say something about. The, your roommate, not roommate, mm -hmm. but whatever, mm -hmm. the, the neighbor, uh, the, the guy who sleeps next to you. And, and one day he just, he ran out of things to say. And he said that he just said something very, you know, normal. I said, no, yeah. oh, yeah, I, I saw a tear coming out of his eye. Mm. You know, it couldn't, mm. it, it was supposed to be harmless. Yeah. You never think that it could be harmful. And then that guy got taken away. Because the 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 authorities uh, decided that uh, that tear uh, was interpreted as uh, he was thinking about his family instead of thinking about reconstructing the country uh, or focusing on what he was doing and so on and so forth and he was taken away and we he never came back mm. and uh, and so that's why the silence came you know very quickly mm. and then in a refugee camp. You, you have nothing, uh, and when we arrived in Canada, it was a different silence, and I would say it was the silence of rebirth more than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, we, I really felt like I came out of, of, of my mother's womb a second time, right. you know, that we saw light for the first time, and when you had never seen snow, mm. you know, the luminosity of snow is so surprising and amazing, and Overtake. I, I don't know. It's just so much, you know, for for your eyes, and and then when we arrived there, at that point, you know, the international community was ready to have us, the Vietnamese boat people. That is so apparent in both the books. The um, welcome, yes, that you got from because locals. during those yeah. years, the Australians were there, the yeah. Swedish was, there, you know, the, everybody seemed mm. to be changed, but not Australians. Yes, uh, well, the Canadians also yeah. have changed uh, policy. The, mm. the entire international mm. community has changed, but at that point, everybody opened their doors to us, and so when we arrived in that small city in Quebec, the whole town was there mm. to welcome us. And we walked, you know, we stepped out of the, that bus. And, you know, as an Asian, we, we mm. well, no, I, I was going to say I don't touch so much and then I'm touching you. But 
But, you know, uh, at that point... You were reticent. Yeah, culturally, we we don't touch each other, you know, Mm. not physical. And and we came out, and they just took us in, you know, like... Mm. And they were all big Mm. people and, you know, (laughs) taking us in. And it was my first cultural shock, you know. (gasps) And especially... And number two, we were so dirty. We didn't have running water. We didn't Mm. have electricity. And we had infections all over, uh, you know, with mosquito bites and mm. stuff because we slept directly on the dirt. On dirt. Mm. Mm. And, and we, well, they didn't know that, but we, we had chronic diarrhea as mm. well. Mm. So you just know that you're so <gasps> dirty uh, mm. and, and unattractive. And, but still, those people, they took us in without one split second of hesitation, mm. you know. And in the camp, we didn't have any mirrors, mm. right? Because, well... Yeah, mm. why would we have mirrors? And and luckily we didn't have any mirrors, uh, so we could continue to believe that yeah our neighbor was ugly, but we were fine. You know, like <laughs> you were yeah. all covered with infection, but we're you know, and uh, and the first time, and I I I I, I always cherish that moment because every time I say it, I see myself again, and I will tell you that I had never been that beautiful. At, at that moment in their eyes, I saw myself again for the first time, and then I've never been that beautiful again ever, mm-hmm. because that love, that you know, pure affection mm-hmm. for us—who were we? You know, why would they? And this is a, a purity of that country that I have not found anywhere else, mm-hmm. and and. So it was a moment of love, you know. Mm. We didn't arrive there as, as immigrants. We arrived there as almost like adoptive children, and, and well, almost as their creation. Hence the rebirth. Yes. Yeah. And 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 so, I think I became Canadian at that moment. Not three years later, when we got the papers. You know, we mm. we were and and for the four months that we were in the camp, we were nationless. Mm. And it doesn't, you know, I feel very privileged that I've been nationless. It doesn't happen. Very often, you always right connected to a country. You and I got to be nationless, right? And uh, and and you arrive there, and, and yeah. So mm. I think that moment really changed or, or determined the citizen that you become. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, thirty six years later or forty years later, if you go to Quebec, they would tell you that I I fight for the French language more than most people. Mm, 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 (laughs) mm, I talk too much (laughs) about the French language. Exactly the right timing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.